Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, many individuals I get to interview are in the business world, and uh, we have an exciting guest who is a great brander when it comes to the word sustainability. <laughs> so uh, Bob Willard, uh, I'm going to give you a quick little background, gave up an award-winning successful career in senior management at IBM to devote himself full-time to building corporate commitment to, to sustainability. Wide, widely in demand as a speaker, he has delivered hundreds of presentations demonstrating the business case for sustainability for co to companies, consultants, academics, NGOs worldwide. Bob is the author of the Sustainability Champions Guidebook, The Next Sustainability Wave, and the original edition of the Sustainability Advantage, which is what we're going to talk about today. He was recently appointed uh, in an inaugural member of the Sustainability Hall of Fame by the International Society of Sustainability Professionals. Man, that's the, that is the absolute most I've ever said the word sustainability in three or four <laughs> sentences, just so you know. You did it, it well. Is, you did it well. All right. It, it is an honor to have you here. The book that we're talking about is The New Sustainability Advantage. This came out in 2012, but there are many editions. And uh, it's seven business case benefits of a triple bottom line. Thanks so All much right. for being Thanks so much for being here, Bob. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah. So let's start off with the genesis of this book. What made you want to write this uh, and become known as the sustainability guy? Ah, okay. Uh, well, it was an accident, as many of these things are. Uh, <laughs> That's a business. That's entrepreneurship. <laughs> as you mentioned, I used to have a, a, a fun career in, in IBM, IBM Canada, um, and I had nothing to do with sustainability in that, that life. But in parallel with my last few years there, uh, I got interested in some environmentally uh, related issues in the community that I was living in at the time. And um, mm -hmm. I, uh, I was concerned, especially about a water quality issue with a, uh, a new uh, water treatment plant that was about to be put onto the waterfront of where I was living in Ontario at that time. And um, uh, my wife and I decided that we wanted the water plant moved further away from the nuclear generation station that was just upstream from it in Pickering. Um, than the region of, of Durham was planning to do. So we uh, tried to get them to move it because of concern about the radioactive tritium in our drinking water. Um, and I uh, was not successful in getting them to move the, the water plant. Hmm. However, the three years that we invested in trying to move it uh, woke me up to the fact that I, I naively thought that the people who were looking after us we're looking after us. I, I, I just assumed that they were making those smart decisions. Uh, that was that naivety was um, kind of cleared up uh, for me when I realized that um, they weren't. And so I decided to look into other um, environmentally related issues as part of a part-time master's I was taking through uh, IBM at that time. I was working on leadership development and learning organization stuff, and I was taking a master's and all of that stuff, and I needed some credits to finish it off. So I enrolled in environmentally related courses uh, at the U University of Toronto. Got it. And that was really depressing. I, I, depressing? I had, well, it was <laughs> awful. Uh, I, I had no idea. I, I was <laughs> clueless on some of the big environmental issues that are facing us. Um, 
So uh, I thought, geez, we got to fix this. I mean, I've got a family and I was about to have grandkids at that point. Um, so I, <laughs> I, uh, I thought, okay, if we're going to fix this, we need to engage people with money, influence, and smarts to be able to help governments do this. And mm -hmm. those people, from my experience, were in business. So we needed to get businesses to stop creating the problems and help solve the problems. And as you know, business can't do anything or it's not allowed to or it's not smart to unless there's something in it for them. Yep. So what's in it for a company to clean up its act and to help others clean up their act? That's the business case. So uh, my master's thesis was actually the business case for doing that, quantifying the benefits to that company of reducing its impacts or improving its impacts on people and planet. Uh, my advisor at the time <laughs> suggested that I maybe should convert that into a book. And I can remember distinctly laughing in his face. I said, why would I ever do that? First of all, nobody would read it. And secondly, it's a lot of work. Uh, so I, 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 you know, I, no thank you. So he just kind of planted that seed. And after I retired uh, in 2000 from IBM, I don't golf. Uh, so I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, so I thought, what the heck, I'll convert that thesis into a book. So I did. Uh, and that was the sustainability advantage, um, which quantified the business benefits. Those are the seven business benefits of paying attention to this stuff. And um, that was the beginning. I started to do talks on it. I started to create resources that help companies quantify it. And um, that ended up, now I've written about uh, six books. And I've got about a dozen tools that are useful for organizations to not only quantify, but also assess um, what's in it for them if they were to do things differently than they're already doing. Well, so that was the beginning. You just said the magic phrase, what's in it for them? And it sounds like you lean in on that quite heavily with this book that what's in it for them, you can increase revenue, improve productivity, reduce expenses, decrease risks. Now, in my opinion, I don't know much about the sustainability projects and what's in, 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 uh, put into place, but in my automatic response is that means it's going to cost more. That's probably going to take you know, time and energy, and therefore I'm not going to see a return on investment, but it sounds like you have a different perspective. So is that what you have to lean in on is showing the benefits when it comes to the finances and the income statement and the balance sheet? Not only showing the benefits, but quantifying and monetizing the benefits, all the benefits, not just the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, of the business case, which is saving money on your energy bill, your water bill, your waste bill, your materials bill. So that those are the four things that are the low-hanging fruit. It's, it's easy to do that. We know how to do that. It's very straightforward. But very often, those savings are not enough to justify the project that allows you to do that. So we need to be more inclusive of other benefits, reducing risks and monetizing what, what that value is of reducing those risks, uh, engaging your employees in, a, in things that they care about as people, um, and ending up with more energized, committed, engaged employees than perhaps you have now because they really want to help the company um, on issues that they care about, especially carbon and climate and energy uh, kinds of issues. So quantifying those benefits and making sure that they are accounted for in the business case, the cost benefit analysis of the project 
is something that most most sustainability uh, advocates, champions, um, are not only not able to do that, they don't think they should be allowed or required to do that. They think companies should just do the right thing because it's the right thing. And they're not good at having conversations with hard-nosed chief financial officers who are trying to control the, the expenses of the organization and uh, having a conversation that respects their perspective on what it takes to be able to cost justify a project. So a lot of my tools are intended to help them with that conversation. So IBM is your background, right? That's where you made your bones, it yep. sounds like. Yep. Um, when I think of IBM, obviously I'm thinking of computer chips and computers. So yep. I don't automatically think, oh, they're destroying the air. They're not creating a lot of pollution. They should be already doing things somewhat eco-friendly. And maybe I'm wrong about that. So when you were there, did you notice that even IBM was doing a bunch of things that was harmful to the environment? And then individuals like you came in and refined it, and it also increased their bottom line? Well, uh, just just to go back to my experience in IBM, I, I was not aware at the time I was in IBM of what IBM was doing on this stuff because I wasn't interested in it. I, I was having a good time uh, selling stuff, um, supporting stuff, uh, managing organization parts of the organization. What year was that, um, by the way? IBM was a massive player, in, I think, in the eighties and early nineties. Oh yeah, uh, huge, huge, and 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 they were doing good things. But mostly, what they were trying to do was to make darn sure they weren't uh, causing any spills, causing any damage, causing any um, major environmental. Uh, disasters or, or problems. So a lot of the work that was being done on sustainability was in the plants, in the plants that produce the computers and the chips and all of that kind of stuff to make sure their handling of chemicals and all of those things uh, was uh, safe and not going to cause any spills. Um, and that the emissions cut from those plants were not uh, polluting the atmosphere as well. So it was mostly that kind of uh, attention. Lately, organizations are asked to do a lot more than that. But at that time, uh, IBM was really working very, very hard to clean up its act. And why was it doing that? Because, unfortunately, there was one year when IBM was deemed by the Environmental Protection Agency in the U.S. to have the most polluting plant in the United States. And that was in Endicott, New York. Jeez. From a plant that was making computer chips and, and computer parts. Um, and it turned out that that plant was the worst polluting manufacturing plant in the United States at that time. Jeez. And when that word Thanks. came out, the company went nuts. It just went nuts. And it said, okay, this is not us. Being in, in that situation is absolutely against everything we stand for. So we will never, ever, ever allow that to happen again. And in fact, they changed everything so they got the best plants now. Um, but that's the IBM culture. When you're when you're called out for something, you just fix it. Um, and uh, that was the wake up call. And now more and more organizations are starting to realize that this is important uh, to their success as businesses. Mm. And so, after you put this book out. Did you feel a lot of pushback from companies? Hey, we don't need that. Or individuals look at this and say, well, that has to do with climate change. And 
you know, uh, that's still up in the air if people believe in it. Most, a lot of, I know a lot of companies that, um, see how, you know, they, the people who are promoting climate change is a big problem or actually the ones that cause the most carbon in the air. And, uh, and so did you get, feel a lot of pushback? Was that something that you were expecting or, um, how did you handle that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the, the book that I wrote showed that a, a normal company, an average company, regardless of sector and so on and size, uh, could make 51 to 81% more profit um, if it was cleaning up its act from an environmental point of view and a impacts on community point of view. Um, and those were factored, those numbers were factored down quite dramatically uh, to get them under 100% because I was uneasy that nobody would believe it if it was more than that. Uh, but the research that I'd done showed the potential was significantly higher than that. Hmm. So my my quandary was, then why isn't everybody doing this? I mean, if it's so fantastic, if this is a no-brainer, why don't they just do it? So that's why I undertook a doctor to figure that out. I, I thought, okay, something's getting in the way of companies embracing this. What is that? So I did a doctorate. I got that in uh, 20, 2005. Um, and basically, the the answer to my question was mindset that businesses are so convinced that anything to do with tree hugger type issues, green issues, is going to be way too expensive and slow them down, that they can't get their heads around the fact that this is actually going to be good for business. So regardless of how quantified the business case is and all of the stuff that I did, they didn't even think it was possible and therefore that i was probably smoking something when i was doing all of this so you know it, it, it's a if if you know that it's going to be good and people just still don't do it you kind of wonder uh what the heck is going on so that's part of the challenge is is how to engage organizations and even taking a look at these uh opportunities for them mm. Yeah, I see individuals like uh, or companies out there like Nippon Steel just bought U.S. Steel. And uh, you would think that companies like them, they have certain regulations they don't have to abide by. So it gives them the ultimate advantage in the marketplace. Combine that with unions that U.S. companies have to abide by. And it's an uneven playing field. So that's, I think, a lot of pushback that I've seen. But I want to get to the seven powerful yet easy to grasp sustainability strategies. The average person out there listening is an entrepreneur. So what could somebody who has a business, whether it's in the zero to one million or one to 10 million or potentially a billion dollar company, take from this uh, podcast and apply right away? So I think the first thing to work on is, is your energy consumption, trying to get more energy efficient and trying to supply that energy from more renewable sources. So that's that's top of mind. Climate change is a huge issue, not only in North America, but in Europe, in fact, around the world. Uh, we're still not getting that under control. And there's more and more pressure on companies uh, to do that from their customers. So if you're a supplier to a big company, and that big company is getting pressure to reduce its carbon footprint, then uh, you should expect them to start asking more pointed questions about what you are doing uh, to reduce your carbon footprint as a supplier, because they are now accountable, accountable for your emissions. That's driving them nuts, but it's certainly increasing the, uh, the motivation to deal with companies that are more committed to reducing their greenhouse gases to net zero by 2050. 
which is what the uh, scientists say we, we need to be able to do. So, so real what, quick what is, on, on that for a company, more yeah. revenue uh, real and quick. savings on energy. I'm going to jump in there real quick. A uh, lot of questions come at me whenever I see in the comments, but carbon. All right. I think that people don't know what the accurate level is. Now, when I ask some scientists, hey, what's the percentage of carbon in the air? I believe the number is like 0.3% or something like that. Are you do you do you know the numbers at all? Uh, not in terms of percent, but I do know that whatever it is, is, is causing a greenhouse gas effect, a greenhouse effect on the, on the planet and the temperature of the planet on average is continuing to rise as a result of that. Got it. So if we're trying to fix carbon though, in the, in the environment, in the air atmosphere, I always wondered, okay, and this is the greatest pushback is like, okay, what is the accurate number we're trying to get to? And I have asked many people and nobody really knows. So does that concern you that you really don't know what the number is supposed to be? Um, it doesn't, and it doesn't, and I, doesn't concern me a bit. Got it. Okay. All right. Because Just, what we know is we have to get off fossil fuels. We have to stop burning fossil fuels that create um, greenhouse gases that are causing this greenhouse effect. Got it. Um, so it's, it's pretty straightforward. We, regardless of how many parts per Per million uh, we have in the atmosphere and 350 is what we're look, looking for we're way over that now um, so the, the the amount that's in the atmosphere is being contributed to by uh, the operation of the businesses around the world and the operation of homes around the world so we need to collectively uh, reduce our dependence on fossil fuels well real quick on that are you familiar with uh what's his name rudolph diesel who created the diesel engine no, I'm not. Go yes. ahead. So back in 18, late 1800s, he created the diesel engine that ran off of peanut oil. And really, he was trying to create the diesel engine for vegetable oil. So farmers could grow the crops and it can um, be ran off of fuel that you just grow, right? That's incredible. He was thrown overboard on, in 1913, uh, right around um, when the battle between petroleum versus vegetable oil was kind of boiling to a to a, 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 a a top, I guess, to the surface. And he was killed. And many people believe that he was killed because of the battle between Rockefeller and petroleum and, you know, individuals being able to grow their own fuel. So it's amazing that you go back a hundred years, there was a battle that really took place. And after he died, it really became petroleum diesel. So pretty insane how our existence nowadays is based off of um, how we adopted petroleum and maybe there was some foul play that took place. So getting back to the vegetable oil possibly could be the greatest way, right? Yeah, sure. Uh, the biofuels, which are vegetable based or uh, organically based uh, fuels uh, are one part of the solution. Unfortunately, we can't produce enough of them to replace all of the fossil fuels that we're, we're burning. So we need uh, other solutions as well. Got and basically what we need to look at is reducing our carbon footprint to as close to zero as possible, net zero, um, as quickly as possible. I've been able to do that um, for my business operation, and uh, it hasn't slowed me down a bit. Wow. So, but your carbon footprint is based off of even breathing. A man breathes air and gives off carbon. Is that right? Oxygen is... Yeah. Uh, and so... You could never really go to zero, I think. Is that right? Well, those, yeah, well, it's called net zero, but because uh, of what I breathe is being absorbed by the trees and plants around me and so on. 
the human breath is not a big factor in all of this. It's the carbon and methane, uh, the carbon dioxide, fossil fuels and methane uh, that we are uh, unfortunately uh, burning uh, and we need to get off that. So being alive is not the problem. (laughs) Well, I do. I do believe the uh, population is declining year after year. So uh, it actually there's 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 people out there like the Elon Musk's that say, you know, uh, they're in they're humanists, right? They need more people, but uh, less people is actually making some of the environmentalists happy. It seems like so. I, well, I'm, I'm glad know, you're not agreeing actually, with that. That's good. Uh, actually, the population of the world is going up uh, as we speak. Uh, we're over we're about 8.1 billion people on the planet right now. And uh, when I was born, just to put that in perspective, there were 4.2. Uh, so uh, the population of the planet is uh, significantly. It's increasing. Uh, so from what I gathered, it this is the most that we'll ever have and it's starting to fall. So maybe I'm wrong. I'll look into that. Um, but go into the uh, the next lesson that uh, you, that an individual who's listening can take away and apply to their business. Well, I, I think the first thing you, you need to realize is that um, if you want to uh, attract customers who are getting more and more pressure these days on um, paying more attention to uh, so-called low-carbon footprint products and low-carbon footprint suppliers that are making those products, uh, this positions you to do well. The European Union is putting an incredible amount of pressure on their uh, big um, big companies, big corporations, to uh, pay more attention to this, not only in their own operation, but in their supply chains. Uh, so um, we're seeing more of that in North America as well. So. The revenue part, you can make more money because people are looking for these kinds of solutions. And um, we can also save money on energy, water, material, and waste and engage your employees and make them more productive. Got it. Cool. So my thought is uh, right out of the gate, uh, maybe these are the two big things, but I see individuals who are flying around on private private planes putting out the most amount of carbon. And... uh, you're talking about individuals who most likely are the wealthy, the elite. And so that's number one. If you take away that, that probably, I think one flight in private planes um, is actually equal to the amount a car puts out in its entire existence. So do you think that that is something that needs to be done? And then the next step is, I believe if you're a real environmentalist for sustainability, you have to look at all these wars and say, well, these got to stop. And if you're a true environmentalist, you have to say, Putin, Whatever's necessary, we're not going to keep funding this war. So you keep get this war going. We'll do whatever is necessary to stop the bombs and all the death and all the destruction because that really hurts the environment. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. So, so wars are a huge contributor. Uh, flights are a huge contributor. Not only the commercial flights, but the private flights. Uh, forest fires are huge contributors as well. Volcanoes are as well. Wow. Uh, so, so these natural. A lot, a lot of contributors, a yeah. lot of contributors, some of which we have no control over, uh, some of which we do. Uh, so, we need to kind of start where we are and uh, do what we can to help our piece of the action and then see if we can encourage others. And that's where books come in. I mean, books are one communication uh, approach, and your, you know, your, your million dollar book logo there behind you. Uh, implies that if you write a book, you can not only influence the behaviors of others, but you can do well by doing that. Bingo. Um, so 
Am I uh, consulting? No, I, I actually, I don't consult. I, I make some money from the, the talks that I do. I've done about uh, 1,700 talks since I started all of this, um, some of which I get paid for, which is kind of nice. And it's also a way to get out the, uh, the fact that you are an expert in a particular area. So if you wanted to undertake consulting, it's a great way to hang out your shingle and let people know that you have expertise that perhaps can help them on some of the challenges that they have. I, I don't do consulting. I do projects from time to time. Um, but the way I get known is through the book. So the, the book is a vehicle to um, generate business of whatever kind you want, whether it's uh, speaking engagements or whether it's consulting engagements or whether it's simply the opportunity to work on projects that are going to help uh, multiple folks be able to improve their their sustainability related impacts. 100%. It increases your influence, your boost your authority. The root word for authority is author. So the moment you have that, now you can educate people and influence them to make better decisions. You, you become sort of an example and you attract opportunities rather than have to hunt them down. I love what you just said there. Good. Yeah, and being published is is a wonderful credential. Uh, being a published author uh, really gets people's attention. When I when I try to dissect why it is that I get requests to do talks and so on, is it because of my my white hair that I you know I look like I know what I'm talking about, or or my experience in IBM, my business experience, or my doctoral degree, or or because I'm a published author? And I would say. I, at least half of them are just because I'm a published author. Ooh, man. Can I get that as a testimonial to share out with all my clients? That's exactly <laughs> what I say. I love it. Yeah. So, it, it, it's amazing. You know, how, how when I wonder how people hear about me, some of them stumble across my website and so on. But I, I am continuously amazed at how many people have my book on their bookshelf. It, it's It's incredible. Yeah, it's the serve the many for service to the many leads to greatness. And that's why I love entrepreneurship and capitalism. You actually get rewarded for helping people. Now, think about that. You serve others, whether it's through the written word or through a product or a service, and you can make their life better and you get compensated because of it. I mean, that's the most magical thing of it. So um, is there a, a, a story or a case study that can stand out? For the audience when it comes to maybe you went into a business um, that you haven't mentioned yet and really implemented a few things maybe you saved some money on water like i'm i love filtering my water and uh you know i i i look at you know ev vehicles electric dirt bikes for example i was so against them for a long time and then i rode one and i'm kind of <laughs> blown away that how powerful they are getting and how incredible it's going to become five ten years from now so i could see the future so is there anything that you implemented in a company or you saw somebody do and it just kind of revolutionized, revolutionized their business, but also sure. made their business better, right? Sure. Just on the uh, electric vehicle part, I've never had a more powerful car than my uh, my electric vehicle that I've got now. The the torque, the instant acceleration on that car is scary. So it's, it's really fun to drive. What do you have? Is it a Tesla? Uh, actually, it's a Leaf. It's a Nissan Leaf. And, wow. Uh, I, I found it was more comfortable than a Tesla. The, the instrumentation was more uh, appropriate for me and my wife. So it, it, um, I'm very, very happy with it. Got it. Coming back to your question, um, there's an organization or a company called Veriform in Ontario, in Cambridge, Ontario, which is a metal fabricating company. 
And uh, the owner of that company, Paul Rack, uh, many years ago, uh, had his first child the same year that he saw the Al Gore movie, An Inconvenient Truth, the original one. Um, and he, after that movie, said, oh, I, I am very concerned about my child's future, especially with, with the climate change predictions that are going on. Uh, so I want to reduce my contribution to the problem and reduce my carbon footprint. So previously, if you'd spoken to him about this before he saw the movie and had his daughter, had this first child, uh, he would have just blown you off saying he's too busy, got other stuff. But all of a sudden he decided he was going to do it. And uh, he undertook a bunch of projects and he increased his profits by 76%. He reduced his energy use, his natural gas use, as well as his electricity use by 60 to 90%, depending on, on which project you looked at. He's documented all of that and he did it um, in a very businesslike way. Every one of his projects had a return on investment that he calculated that was within his business model's range. So he he did this in a very hard-nosed way. He undertook uh, all of these projects with the help of his employees. He figures he saved over $2 million uh, from all of the projects that he's undertaken. And about uh, a third of that is because he's had no employee turnover. That's crazy. His employees won't leave. In fact, they love working for his company. In his his uh, metal fabricating uh, sector, uh, the turnover is extremely expensive because they're very highly skilled kinds of jobs. Uh, and he figures he saves uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of what his competitors are going through as they still experience the turnover. He says zero turnover. Nobody wants to leave. In fact, they love finding new ways of saving uh, energy, saving natural gas, improving profits. Uh, his business has gone up dramatically because he's known as someone who's not only good at doing what he's doing, but doing it in a way that is more appropriate for some of the things that his customers care about as well. Um, and it's fantastic for for him, for his employees, for his customers, for everything. Wow. So um, it's like he wears his core values on his sleeve and it seems like he's able to attract a tribe and a group of customers that believe in the same mission, which obviously increases loyalty. Yeah. And then the irony is that he didn't do it to, to make money or save money. He did it because he wanted to reduce his carbon footprint. The byproduct, the co-benefit were all of the uh, savings that he got uh, and the, the $2 million that I referred to. So the regardless of your motivation, once you decide to undertake it, once you make the decision, uh, magic happens. It's just, it's just amazing. So where do you stand on? And maybe this is where you can uh, really paint a picture for me. Where do you stand on the 15 minute city idea? Um, in my opinion, I'm a freedom guy. I just love being able to go wherever, whenever, with whomever. So I look at these 15 minute cities, Bob, as a uh, as little prisons. What do you believe they are like? Well, it can be a takeaway if it's not designed properly. But but if public transportation allows you to get to where you want to get to or walk to uh, where you want to get to, if it's closer, um, if there are other ways of getting around other than having your own vehicle, um, I, I think it could it can work. They do work. Uh, and I, I think that they 
would be something that um, people could get easily used to when they don't think it's a, a takeaway or a sacrifice. Um, but that's a that's a mindset change that is not going to happen overnight. Yeah, good point. That's right. Great. It has to be for people who are totally content with convenience and simplicity. And it's very much like, in my opinion, uh, like a zoo. Yeah, there's security, there's safety, but you know, sometimes people want to get outside of those walls. And I think the people who would like those type of cities may not care to go outside. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Is that well, it's almost absolutely. like a- and look, I uh, I used to have two cars in the garage. Now I've only got one. But even that one, the, the electric vehicle, uh, I don't use very much. I should be using Uber more or, or something like that. I've got an electric drill that I haven't used for maybe 15 years, and I bought it to do three projects. Why did I buy that darn thing? Because the mentality is you just want it there when you need it. Uh, you don't want to have to go rent it. Uh, so the convenience factor is driving a lot of behaviors in, in all of us. And um, it's it's a very hard mindset to change. And I I have the same problem. Man, you, you bring up another good point. I think the generation that's turning 16, 17, 18 right now, they're not getting cars like they once did. Which so is, they are, they're relying, maybe there are some stats that you can uh, share with our audience, but I think it's, I mean, it's overwhelming that kids turning 16 are not getting their license and they're using the Ubers. Yeah, it's, it's a very, very different mindset. It's so refreshing and it's driving insurance companies nuts because they're not having to insure as many cars or as many people. Um, so the, um, <laughs> the repercussions of those behavior changes are... Um, uh, significant in, in the economy, but um, I think I think in some cases they're modeling the way. You know that they they don't need to have their own car to be able to do what they want to do when they want to do it. What do you think about uh, when it comes to electricity? Do you love the solar panels on the houses or even on the business? Like what when you say you're net zero, are you getting away from all uh, all? energy that is not wind or solar or battery what are you doing for that and what do you where do you stand well in the part of canada that i'm in there's an organization called bullfrog power and bullfrog power will provide uh, renewable energy into the grid that i use and i subscribe to them and i pay a premium for them uh basically replacing the normal electricity that i get with renewable power and the Mm -hmm. same thing with natural gas uh, I get green gas from them. I pay a premium for that. So basically, my natural gas use and my electricity use is all supplied by them, and that allows me to uh, reduce the or not have to worry about the carbon associated with that because there isn't any. Um, in the case of of solar panels and heat pumps and so on, um, if your if your home has a design on the roof that allows you to put them up, that that's fantastic. And if you can cost justify doing that, that's fantastic. Uh, heat pumps are getting easier and easier to uh, install even and work even in very cold climates. And they're significantly cheaper than a gas furnace. So um, the options are, are, are there. You can either install your own uh, stuff or, uh, as I say, use bullfrog power type approach to uh, being able to tap into renewable energy. and um natural gas as opposed to fossil gas 
I think there's an, a natural occurrence of individuals being able to not drive as much, right? I think people have Zoom and social media and they can work from their house. So I think traffic is automatically dr dying down and that's probably doing some good for the environment, right? So right now with all these technological advances, it, there has to be a movement, even if you take away you know, the fact that there's EV cars, cars just being on the road less probably has to have some type of benefit. So I think the free market did that more so than all these regulations. Do you agree with that? Yeah, and so did COVID. I mean, COVID really caused a lot of people to start working from home uh, remotely. And uh, many of them found that they were able to do that and not have to pay others to look after their kids uh, because they were home. So they could work from home and avoid the cost of daycare, et cetera, especially if they had young families. So the the hassle in terms of time and money associated with going into work every day uh, was removed. So COVID had a funny byproduct. People got so used to working from home that getting them to go back into the office now that, that the COVID epi epidemic has passed, they they really push back saying, no, I don't I don't need to go in. I can, I can do what I need to do from home. Um, and I've got uh, kids that are now managers of, of departments that are requiring their their people to come in and people are really pushing back saying, no, 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 oh, I, I, I don't want it. And they're saying, well, okay, just, just one day a week then, just one day a week to try to kind of connect in, in person with your colleagues. Um, so it's a very different dynamic. So as we take a look at that, the need for people to drive and commute on the roads has gone away for a lot of people. Um, this is my home office. It's it's 15 feet from my kitchen. You know, I I don't I don't have a long commute every day. Uh, so uh, I think there are more and more people who are able to do what they do uh, without having to go through the commute and uh, clog up their roads. Last question I have for you is uh, for someone out there like myself, even who says, all right, we're on this big ball that's traveling through space. They say 66,000 miles per hour. We're spinning around. You have a universe that there are multiple galaxies around us. We can't control everything. Who are we even kidding? And since there's only been recorded history for 8,000 years and we're millions of years old, yes, temperature changes happen. So when somebody says we really can't control it and even trying to say we do is fooling ourselves, do you completely disagree with that? Or do you believe that there's some control, but maybe some of it's out of our control? Is that right? Oh, yeah. In, in fact, of, of course, our circles of influence are, are limited um, <laughs> and they always will. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't at least uh, give it a shot and see whatever you're doing, if whatever you're doing can also be useful for others and then communicate that out there. That gets into books, it gets into websites, it gets into the kind of thing that you're doing. Um, which, which is ways of planting seeds in um, other people's heads that maybe there's something that they could or should be doing that uh, makes a difference on issues that are global issues, but each of us are inadvertently perhaps contributing to those issues in ways that we can change. So um, a lot of what I'm trying to do these days is use my own tools to engage governments and businesses on changing their their business models and then ripple that through other countries, other businesses as well. 
and the more you get into this, the more you realize that we've got a lot more leverage than we think we do. And it's uh, fun to give it a shot. Well, in the very beginning, you said it was depressing when you found out all these stats and figures. So as soon as you get through that period, you're okay, right? Yeah. <laughs> I find it more energizing than depressing these days. I just refuse to accept that we've screwed up the world as badly as we have, and we can't fix it. So it's it's up to us to fix it. Oh, great stuff. Last question then, uh, outside of your own book, is there a book you recommend for our listeners and viewers to read uh, that might get them to think like you, or maybe that puts you on this path? Uh, natural capitalism is, is probably a dated book, but it was written by Amory Lovins, Hunter Lovins, and Paul Hawken many, many years ago. It's my Bible uh, on all of this. Um, the examples are a bit dated, but the ideas in it are not. Uh, natural capitalism is talking about uh, new business models that are um, much smarter and much better than others and how to make money from doing things which are more responsible. The other book that would be uh, useful to consider is Mid-Course Correction, Mid-Course Correction by Ray Anderson. Ray Anderson was the CEO of a company called Interface Carpet. Um, and he, uh, late in his career, woke up to the impact that his company's operation was having on the planet and decided to do a mid-course correction. And uh, he talks about what he did, how he did it, and why he did it. And it's outstanding. The guy is an icon. Really, really good. Two books I've never heard of. passed away, but, but he's, it's, it's outstanding. I've never heard of those. And Natural Capitalism. God, I love the title of that. So I'll have to check that out. Yeah. But uh, guys, the book that we're talking about today, if you want to learn how to become more sustainable with your business, you know, increase revenue, improve productivity, reduce expenses and decrease risks. The book is called The New Sustainability Advantage, Seven Business Case Benefits of a Triple Bottom Line. And Bob Willard, I uh, I really appreciate your time and uh, thank you so much for for being here. I know you're you're a speaker. You're out there on the circuit. You understand the power of writing. You have multiple books and it means a lot that you're here. Thank you for the opportunity, Mike. You do good stuff. This Thank is really you. important. Appreciate it. Guys, remember, a million-dollar book will lead to a million-dollar life. Right on.